0: Isaiah 50, or 36 is what we're going to pick up, but I want to give you just kind of an idea for the day. We'll just call it the battles of life, right? So Christians face battles against culture, sin, self, and a spiritual enemy. Isaiah records a great battle that King Hezekiah faced in Jerusalem, teaching us to fight our battles with unwavering faith in Jesus. So that's the snapshot of today. We all face battles, whether it be inside ourselves or whether it be with our neighbors, we fight with culture, we fight with sin, we fight with all those things, we even have a spiritual enemy. So Isaiah captures this massive battle, and if there was ever anything that would feel greater than the season that we've been in right now, it would be a massive army surrounding our final city. Imagine like a a navy regatta outside of LA County, and then just working its way in, conquered everything up to Orange County, Inland Empire, and up into Kern County, and L.A. County is all that's left, or even smaller, L.A. City. And it's worked its way in, and there is a massive army, an army we can't overcome. That would be the feeling. And that would probably feel much more scary than And I, you, This may be a scary virus to you. This may be a scary economy to you. You may be anxious. But I, I, if an army, an actual, physical, visible audible army was there. Imagine how fearful we might be or how anxious we might be if we knew we couldn't overcome it. And that's where the people are today. So Isaiah 36, I'm going to start in verse 1. At times, we're going to move really quickly because we're going to cover a lot of ground. So bear with me. We're going to put the verses on the screen. It says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them So here's the deal, just like the picture I painted around L.A., if you will. Sennacherib and his armies in Assyria, the massive Assyrian empire that swept through history two and a half millennia ago. This army is standing at the edge of Jerusalem right now. They are visible. You can hear them when they scream, when they are ready for battle, and they have conquered the rest of this nation. But God has preserved Jerusalem God has begun working with a king named Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king of Judah, the king in Jerusalem, the capital. And Hezekiah has returned to following God. He, is, he has been a man who is calling his nation to return to following God. And as he does this, God honors that, and the nation is taken except for Jerusalem, where Hezekiah is. And people in Jerusalem are beginning to return back to God. Remember, the, the sweep of Isaiah is... There are people that should be following God. There are people that we would call God's people at the time, but they're becoming incredibly disobedient, or they have become incredibly disobedient. In fact, their main disobedience is that they look like the world around them and not a distinct group of people who follow God. Now just push pause there for a second and imagine the church in America. That is a great way to describe us, that we look like the world around us. We post on social media, the same kind of post the world around us posts. We enjoy the same things. We struggle with the same things. There is a barely discernible, distinctive difference in many, many cases between the church in America and those who are not the church in America. Our challenge is to figure out how, how how does that describe us? And again, this is not to change the world, this is to change us. In fact, when we change us, then we change those around us, then others around us see how distinct, how different, how transformed, how redeemed, how healed, how at peace, even amongst crazy circumstances that we are because of Christ. And when that takes shape, that begins to change the world around us. The greatest impact I have had on people around me Hasn't been because I get to do this necessarily. Some of the greatest impact that I've been able to have in my life is people seeing who I was and all the brokenness and all the damage and all the problems there and then seeing who I am today. And they've seen the transformation. I know they know that that's not of me. And if they ask, I will tell them it's not of me. Transformed lives impact people. And so as God calls the people to return to him, some are starting to come back. Verse 2, and the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish. That's Rabshakeh. Think of the word sheikh or prince. This is this high-level official that the king is sending in to communicate on his behalf. So he sends the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And so here is the setting. This is the place that I talked about. The army is all around them. They have nowhere to go. They're surrounded by an enemy, and the enemy is much greater than them. And they're inside this fortified city, but all the other fortified cities in this nation have been conquered by this army. And as they're closing in, Really, the the conquering army pauses outside of Jerusalem because everything else has been destroyed. They think maybe these people will just surrender. And there's a great cost to war. Sennacherib is, is spending money on soldiers and food and all the things necessary, whether it be arrows or weapons or anything. And so if he can get them to just give in and collapse, he can take the city for free and still get the spoil, the plunder, the loot, the money right? And so this is the setting. He sits outside this fortified city, and before he goes in and exerts the energy to conquer this last city, he sends somebody in to talk to them. And the officials of Jerusalem, not the king and not Isaiah, but the other officials walk out, and they go out to listen to the Rabsheka. Verse 4, and the Rabsheka said to them, say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar?" So there's a lot of context here, and we're, again, we're diving in now. This is the midpoint of the book, and so there's a lot that's taken shape, and there's a lot that's gone on, but just understand this. The conquering king sends a speaker, and the speaker goes in, and he calls out the people of God. He calls them out, the people who are supposed to be a people of faith, but have been so disobedient to God that God has has lifted his protection off of them, calling them to return to him, Calling them to change, promising them, if you come back to me, if you return to me, I will save you. In fact, the proof is this: Jerusalem has begun to return to God. And as they do this, God stops the army before them. But then, as the speaker cries out, he calls them out. He he says, "Listen, you tried to ally with, to to make allies with Egypt, that failed." Right? He calls out their God who allowed them, allowed them to conquer the rest of the nation. He calls out their past failures in worship. He points out, to all the, points out all the things that the people have done inside those walls that they have failed at. Sometimes we have an enemy that just, whether it's inside of us, whether it's spiritual or physical or emotional, we, we have someone that just speaks out all those failures to us all the things that we have done wrong. And that's what's taking place. There was an actual person calling out audibly all the things that the people inside, surrounded by this massive army, knowing they can't defeat them militarily, calls out all their failures. Just imagine inside how they might feel. Imagine as we feel like we're being broken down by others. So this is a test of faith. We'll put this on the screen for you. Jerusalem faces an Assyrian army due to their disobedience to God. The country has been destroyed and they must choose right now between joining Hezekiah and trusting God or abandoning God entirely. In the midst of this, there's a test for them. Their faith is being tested. The challenge in front of them is insurmountable. Will they lean into God? Will they trust God to do literally the miraculous or, will they give in and abandon God altogether? You and I, we face this in our lives all the time. We face struggles, we, we face hard times, we face battles, we, we face things that we can't overcome. And when we do so, we, we know we have a choice. Okay, do I trust in God to figure this out for me? Do I surrender myself to God and, and quit trying to hang on and do things in my strength, things that are, that are not successful anyways? Or do I just give in to this thing? Do I just abandon God? Do I just turn away from God and allow this thing to win? And when we feel tired and we feel lonely, we feel weak, we feel accused and condemned, our faith begins to be tested. Verse 8 says, "Now come now. So this is, remember, this is the speaker of, from Assyria speaking to them. He says, come now, make a wager, bet with me if you will, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you are able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants? When you trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen, moreover, it is without the Lord that I have come up against this land to destroy. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Two things take place here. He mocks them. He says, "Listen, if I gave you two thousand horses, could you even put soldiers on those horses? Could you put? Could you even mount a defense if I gave it to you?" His his point is, no, no, you've got nothing. And then he says this. He says, "You trusted in Egypt to supply for you, and they didn't. And you'd have to know the history here, but they just Egypt just burned them for a deal. But what was going on?" was that the people of God, rather than trusting in God, tried to make an alliance with a pagan nation next to them in Egypt with Pharaoh. And when they thought they had this deal, Egypt pulled out and they had no deal at all. That's kind of how things go in life. And so then the Assyrian speaker, he says this to them. He says, listen, it's your God that told us to come in and conquer your nation. He knows the prophecies. He knows they've been unfaithful. Word is out that God has lifted his hand off of them. And Assyria has come in to destroy Jerusalem. Verse 11, Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah, or Hebrew, within the hearing of the people who were on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? I won't expand on that last line because I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but here's what he's saying. The officials in, in Jerusalem are saying, listen, would you, would you speak to us in your language? We speak your language. Would you stop speaking to us in our language? Because the men on the walls are soldiers, our fighters, our people, our citizens. They can hear you, and they understand you because you're speaking in our language. And the speaker says, listen, why should I just speak to your king and to you? It's their lives at stake. Why don't I speak to them? Let's let them make their own decision. And here's what's going on. It moves it from a king or an official group of people who are tested in their faith, and it moves to every person in Jerusalem being tested in their faith. There's a massive army outside. Do we trust in God? Do we trust in our king Hezekiah who says God will, God will defend us? But but where's God been in every other city in Judah when all of Jerusalem is, when Jerusalem's the only thing left and all of Judah's been conquered? Where is God? So now every person has this decision inside of them that is so much like us today. Every one of us, yes, nationally we have struggles, leadership has struggles. We've been saying this throughout this entire season. Man, be praying for our governor. Be praying for our mayors and our our, our uh, counties. Be praying for the president. Be praying for the experts he leans into, even if we or especially when we don't agree with them. Just admit none of us want that job right now. No one signs up and hopes, hey, a, a global pandemic is going to be what I deal with. Be prayerful for leaders. But then of course inside of our country, every one of us is faced with decisions. No, we can't turn the economy back on. No, we can't open or close the beaches in our cities. But what we can do and what we must do is choose, how do we obey God in this moment? How do we most look like Jesus in this moment? We've talked about that at length. Go back and listen to some of the messages as soon as we went digital on March 15th. Listen to that series and ask yourself, Am I honoring Christ in this situation or am I, am I trying to honor myself? That's what everybody on these walls is faced with. What do I do? Yes, there's a national good, but what do I do? And their faith is being tested. Verse 12, then the rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. So he speaks to them in Hebrew, despite being asked not to. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria, says the king, or excuse me, thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of the city or the king of Assyria. He says, don't trust Hezekiah when he says God will defend you. This king won't conquer us. Don't listen to him. We're coming to destroy you. Verse 16. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. There's an invitation here by the king of Assyria for them to surrender, and there's a promise of safety. Listen, you'll You'll eat your own food, you'll drink your own wine, you'll have your own cisterns for water until I come and get you. And when I get you, I'll take you to land much like your own, which is really code word for if you surrender, I'm going to enslave you and I'm going to strip you out of your city and conquer your city. But the temptation is to surrender. The temptation is to give in and the lie is that it'll be better. Here's a note for you. Assyria tells Jerusalem to surrender and promises them safety when they will ultimately make them slaves. Temptation often comes with a promise of security and satisfaction, but it always leads to misery and slavery. Sin, disobeying God, doing what uh, we choose or what others choose, what the world chooses and not what God has told us is best for us, always looks appealing It always promises some safety or security or some satisfaction. And yet, in the end, it always lies. And it just offers slavery and misery. Ask any addict if what they started with didn't promise something very different than what they ended with. Ask anyone who became unfaithful in a marriage and it ended up breaking up their family. Ask them if in the beginning it didn't sound super satisfying and end in misery. Ask anyone. Because the pain and the sin is real, and the appeal is real, but God is right. God is always right. Verse 18, beware lest Hezekiah, their king, mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods and the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Where have they delivered, Sam- have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all these gods of these lands had delivered their lands out of my hand? And should the Lord deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? He's saying, listen, every nation has their own worship structure, and none of them have worked. I've destroyed them all, including your God and your nation, except for your city. Just give yourselves up. But then the speaker goes one step too far, and he mocks God. Should the Lord deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Like, I'm greater than your God, is what he's saying. Let's See how that plays out for him. Verse 21 But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, Do not answer him. The people remained faithful to God and to their king. Verse 22 Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, and they told him of the words of the Rabshakeh. So let me kind of put this in in, in place for you. The king is inside the city, back inside the city where he's safe. And on the walls are the soldiers and the people we've been talking about. And the officials go out to hear from the Assyrian speaker. And so they've taken all this in. They've been given a choice, and everyone remains silent. No one gives in. They all remain faithful to God and to their king. And so the people, the officials that went out to hear this, they go back to actually talk to King Hezekiah. Isaiah 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. So the people that go to see the king, they tear their clothes. And then Hezekiah tears his clothes. It's, a, it's symbolic of mourning. It's this, sim, it's this symbolic gesture of humbling themselves and mourning and weeping and being broken before God. Verse 2. And he sent Eliakim who was over the household. And Shebna the secretary and the senior priest. Covered with sackcloth. That's their fasting. The sackcloth would be their mourning and fasting attire. To the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos, And they said to him. Thus says Hezekiah. This day is a day of distress. Of rebuke and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth. And there is no strength to bring them forth. King Hezekiah poses the image or gives us the image of a humble, godly man. So let's, let's set this in a modern-day context. Here's the culture. When in the midst of a crisis in the middle of America, and you, can, you can go one of two ways or both. There can be the, the, the viral crisis of coronavirus. There can be the crisis of the economy. And many people have decided they're going to pick one over the other, and they kind of seem to dismiss one or dismiss the other. Uh, Others are in the position of saying, hey, both are crises, both could kill us, what do we do? And and that's the place where everybody in Jerusalem is, there's this crisis in front of them, they can't overcome it, they can't single-handedly overcome the economy, they're they're lucky, or we're lucky, if we can do it together, and we can't single-handedly overcome a virus, We're, we're lucky if we all work together and overcome it quickly. So here we are in this place, this this multiplicity of pandemic. Here we are, and we're faced with choices. Do we act like Hezekiah? Do we press into God? Do we humble ourselves before God? Do we fast and pray? This should be a challenge to every Christian, including myself. Even as I say these words, I know I've not done it. Are we fasting and praying for this issue? Are we fasting and praying for our nation? Are we fasting and praying for our world? Uh, Just um, imagine that in Christianity. I'm guessing 99% of us sitting at home are barely praying and probably not fasting. This is what Hezekiah does with an army surrounding them. He doesn't go eat a good meal make sure he gets his protein and his carbs so he can go out and fight. What he does is he tears at his clothes, he puts on sackcloth and ashes, he mourns and he prays, he humbles himself before God. The only one that can overcome his problems is God, so he humbles himself before God. He makes sure that he is in a posture before God that will cause or allow God to use him in this circumstance. So, a humble response to an overwhelming problem. Here's a note for you. Hezekiah does four incredible things. One, he humbles himself. Two, he goes into the house of the Lord, so he goes into a place of worship, his local church, if you will. He sends for godly counsel, Isaiah, and he admits that he is too weak to continue without God. Verse three, it says this, and he said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day of distress, of rebuke and disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. We're at this place And there's not even enough strength to do what's natural. We've got to lower ourselves, humble ourselves. We've got to lay down our pride and our own efforts. And we've got to come before God. And Hezekiah does something amazing by humbling himself. The king humbles himself. He sends for Isaiah. He gets some godly counsel. He goes into the worship space. He's going to go in and he's going to get with God. And then he calls other people to follow him. He just admits he is too weak to fix this on his own, and his people, his nation, or what's left of it, the city of Jerusalem, is just too weak to do this. Verse 3, Hezekiah continues, he says, it may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard, therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. He, He says, Isaiah, pray for us, Now remember, Hezekiah has begun to return to God, and he's calling the people to return to God, but he still knows how disobedient his nation and himself, how they have been. And so he says, your God, Isaiah, please call on your God. Hezekiah knows, he knows he's his God, but he's just admitting he's not there, that he's been flawed and broken and weak. And so he calls out to Isaiah, pray, pray for us, Isaiah. Verse five, when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men, the king of Assyria, have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, excuse me, so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Here's what Isaiah says. He says, God has told me this. Don't be afraid. Don't give in. God's got this. God is going to take care of Sennacherib. So now the story returns. It's gone from the person speaking on behalf of the Assyrian king, and then it goes inside the walls of Jerusalem to the people telling Hezekiah, Hezekiah sending for Isaiah, Isaiah praying for them, Isaiah getting a response from God and telling Hezekiah the response. And now the story shifts back outside to the Assyrians. Verse 8, the Rabshakeh returned and he found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, another country. For he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning Tirhaka, the king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, thus you shall speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. So here's what takes place. They start to fight other nations around them as they're waiting on this answer, because they're hearing rumors. The very thing God says he will do is, I will cause the king to hear rumors. He'll return home. I'll kill him at home. I will take care of your problem if you will trust me. But in the midst of this, here's one more test. They send a message back to Hezekiah, as they're now defeating other places. In other words, Jerusalem, you're just next. We're not struggling with this. We're coming for you. It says now the king heard concerning. Ter-haka, excuse me, verse ten. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. God just told them, Hey, I've got you. Now the army's king, the Assyrian king, he says, Don't let your God deceive you. He doesn't have you. We're going to conquer Jerusalem. Verse eleven. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Like, who are you, really? Verse 12, have the gods of the nations, the false gods of the people around them, the nations that my fathers destroyed. So when he talks about the kings of Assyria, he is one in a series of kings that are conquering literally the, the, most of the known world at this time. He says, the nations that my fathers destroyed, right in the middle of verse 12, goes on Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telasser. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpa, the king of the city of Sepharim? the king of Hena, the king of Iva. These are all the nations that have been destroyed by this Assyrian army. He's reminding them, don't trust your God. He's telling them, don't don't trust God. God isn't going to save you. No one's gods have saved them. Everybody else, no one has been saved. We're conquering everyone. Now the people inside Jerusalem have one more test. Will they trust the true and living God? Not the false idols of the nations around them, but will they trust the true and living God who has told them, I've got you. You're safe in my hands. You've returned to me, I will honor that. I will protect you. Verse 14 it says this. These are probably the most important verses today. Hezekiah received a letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. I want you to hear this. War surrounds them. Nations have been destroyed. The rest of their nation has been destroyed. Jerusalem is all that's left. And the army has stood outside. And the king has said, we're going to conquer you. His messenger said he's going to conquer you. And Hezekiah gets the word, you're up, you're next, we're coming, unless you surrender. And Hezekiah takes this letter and he goes into his local church, if you will. He goes in to the sanctuary. He goes in and he lays this letter out in front of him. And he just gets laid down, face down before God. This verse is so important. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. The noise of war surrounds him. The armies surround him. The voices inside his head probably giving him mixed answers. His heart, fearful. All this noise, all this loudness around him. And so he goes and he lays down before God. For us today, in our culture, there's the noise of the 24-hour news cycle. There's the noise of social media and everybody having an opinion as if they're experts. There's all this going around us. There's all the struggles, all the problems. How do we respond? Do we become a part of the noise? Do we let the noise affect us? Or do we go get face down before God? Hezekiah prays. Here's a note for you. King Hezekiah models faithfulness, bowing down before God in prayer and worship. Well, under the incredible pressure of war, what do we do when hope seems lost? Do we rely on ourselves or do we turn wholeheartedly to God? When the pressure, the anxiety, the pain, the fear, when it all weighs down on us, how do we respond? Do we just turn to the things that the world turns to? Or do we get face down before God and say, God, only you are greater than all of this. Verse 16, here's Hezekiah's prayer. He says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. And of all the kings of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, verse 19, and have cast their gods into fire, for they were no gods, but the works of men's hands wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Hezekiah prays. He proclaims God as creator. He proclaims that Sennacherib is mocking him, God, the creator of heaven and earth and everything. Other nations worship false idols, idols they made with their own hands of metal and wood and gold. He says, but you are the true God. For those of us that are doing the rooted study, uh, I would encourage you, go back and read through this prayer, the prayer of Hezekiah. See how many different types of prayer, how many different things he does in this prayer. He doesn't just dive into what he needs. He begins really with speaking who God is and putting, putting God in his right place, if you will, just in, in, in Hezekiah's heart. The first thing he must do is put God rightly above the situation Read through those prayers as we talk about prayer and fasting and all that inrooted. I'm going to encourage you. This is an incredible prayer. But he says this: he says, they were no gods, these other gods. They were false idols. Verse 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, went to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. We'll pause there just for a second. God speaks to Hezekiah as Hezekiah prays to him. Because you have prayed to me, here's what I will do. God is answering Hezekiah's prayers. God is moving because a nation has turned back to God and a king is leading the charge and the king is laying himself down before God, surrendering what's left of his kingdom to be faithful to God. Here's the real battle. There's a note for you. Jerusalem was not saved by soldiers on a battlefield, but by a man in a temple laid out before God in prayer. Our battles are won the same way and are lost when we try to go on without God. This was a fight, but it wasn't a fight on a battlefield. This wasn't won by soldiers, arrows, horses. This was won by a man face first on the ground and basically his own church. As he laid down, he prayed, and God fights the battle for him. Here's what's going to happen. He's going to go on, and God is going to defeat the people. God is going to defeat the army. God is going to defend them. And the pivot point is Hezekiah's prayer. Verse 22 this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning Sennacherib. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth. And I will, tr- I'm sorry, I skipped a couple of verses. Verse 22, this is what God says. I'm skipping through some of the imagery that may or may not make sense. Verse 29 is where it picks up. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose, God says, and my bit in your mouth, he says this to King Sennacherib, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. God proclaims this judgment on Sennacherib. And just for sake of time, I'm kind of skipping through some of the image driven thing that takes a lot of explanation. But as we get to this place where God says, Listen, I'm defeating Sennacherib. He goes on in the very next passage, verse 30 and 32, he says, And this shall be a sign for you. This year you shall eat of what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from that. In the third year, you sow and reap. What God says is, not only am I going to defeat Assyria, I'm going to bless you too for your faithfulness, for your return to me, for you surrendering everything to me. I'm going to give you not just victory, I'm not just going to protect you, but I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you what you need to live. Verse 33, it says, therefore says the Lord, concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or, or come before it with a shield or cast out a siege or a mound against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come back into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And we'll wrap that up here, but here's what happens. Not an arrow is shot, and Sennacherib is dead. As the rest of the passage unfolds, he dies. The city is saved. The army is returned. They go back to where they were. And this little city, all that was left of a nation is protected by God because they turned and returned to God. But there's this closing promise that I'm keeping my word to you for you and for my promise to David. See, back in their history was their king that really established this nation, Israel, before it broke into two nations. And God, uh, God had made a promise to David that through David, a Savior would come. That through David, the promise of redemption would come. See, the gospel is is in this this story that, that God created us and loves us and designed us and has called us to be followers, worshipers of God, but in our sin, we've all run away from God. The Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then God made a promise, and God fulfills his promise in Jesus, that Jesus entered into human history, that God became flesh, that Jesus lived the sinless life that you and I are called to live but have fallen short of. And he died a death in our place to take our penalty, to take our punishment. And he rose from the grave that we might have new life. And as Jesus sits on the throne, God above us today, he has poured his spirit out on all who will believe. That not only are we forgiven and not only are we giving newness of life, but we're empowered to live the way he calls us to live in this setting right here, that we're empowered by God through his Holy Spirit because of what Jesus accomplished, because of what God desires for us, he's given us his spirit, empowered us to live for him. In this situation, be it economic or viral, be it medical or or cultural or whatever it might be, that God has equipped us to live the way he's called us to live, not to live the way of the people around us, but to live the way that scripture clearly calls us to live. And one of those is to allow God to fight for us and not just us, not trying to take things into our own hands, not trying to make it about us or in our strength, but to let God fight for us. I'm going to close with these two notes. Jesus is the promise to David. God promised David a savior would come, Jesus. God's covenant never faltered, but due to their disobedience, many people missed seeing the deliverance promised to them. Let that not be us. God made a promise to David thousands of years ago, that came true 2,000 years ago. God reiterates the promise through Isaiah, roughly 800 years ago, made it come true 2,000 years ago. God has made these declarations, these promises, and all throughout history, people have either missed it or been a part of it. Even believers who have just gotten caught up in everything going around them sometimes miss the things God is doing. And I don't want that to be us as a church. I don't want that to be me as a follower of Jesus. I don't want to be so caught up in what the world is doing, what the world is worried about, what the world is concerned with, or the responses the world is giving. I don't want to be so caught up in the news cycle or what everybody's posting on social media or what everybody around me is fearful of or anxious of or angry about. I want to see what God is doing. I want us as a church to see what God is doing in us and through us if you're watching today and you're our guest, let me just say this. As a church, we know one thing for sure. We are a flawed and broken people. We don't always get it right. And the Word of God calls us forward to be more like Jesus. That the Spirit of God empowers us through what Christ accomplished so that we can live like God, live like Jesus, so that we can live in such a way that glorifies God. We fall short of that. But every week, every day, every moment we have this opportunity to return to God. Just like Hezekiah, just like the people on the wall, just like everyone in Jerusalem in this passage, in this historical account of this battle. We all have that battle inside of us. We all have that option. Do we turn and abandon God, or do we press in and trust God? I'll close with this. What is your battle? What battle are you fighting? What needs to be surrendered to God instead of fighting on your own? The Assyrian Empire is an example of insurmountable odds being overcome by Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What's your battle today? Is your battle just to not look like everyone else around you and to be a distinct people of God? Is your, is your battle the fear of what's going on? Is your battle the economic battle? Is your battle the medical battle? Maybe that's you. Whatever it is, God stands exalted over all of it. Jesus came and had victory over all of it. We can't accomplish this on our own, but Jesus can. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the opportunity to gather again as your church, even separated, even at distance, we are still gathered. As your word tells us, do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but to encourage one another, to love one another, to press on towards the goal. And so we do that. We meet. We meet by the means that we have, we meet digitally. We hang out, knowing that the church is the place we turn. Help us, Lord, that we might know where you would lead us. Let us have that moment where you say, okay, here's where I'm taking you. In the meantime, will you, will you soften our hearts that we might see where we're missing things. where we see where, like, where we're just like everyone else and not like Jesus? will you continue to press us in to a place Lord that glorifies you and not ourselves and in that place as we are changed as we are transformed as we are healed as we are redeemed as we are useful to you that the world around us might see you more clearly help us to be that witness for you that glorifies you that makes much of you and little of ourselves Jesus, you laid down your divinity and entered into humanity. You laid down your glory and you became like us. You did so so that we might become like you. So it's in your name we pray.